0: Hey, good morning. I am excited to be with you guys today. Um, Katie and I and our family had a good week. We started off by being in Wichita with some old friends, meeting up with some friends we went to college with in Sterling. And uh, one of my friends there, John. Shout out to John if you're listening, because he told me you would. But he helped me through my preaching class there, and it was funny because I was preaching the next time, um, and so we just we kind of joked about that. So that's cool how God lines those things up. And then. We got to go to Colorado for a week to be with Katie's family. We just got back a few days ago and did all the Colorado things there. And so that was really great. So um, it's been a good week for us. And now we're coming back, and, and we're going to jump right into Titus. The reason we're jumping in is because Garen is taking a, a three-week break. I think he's vacation for part of it, studying for part of it. Um, and so Jason Hubner and Brent McCroy and I are, are going to walk through Titus with you guys, and we're really excited to do it. Speaking of Garen's vacation, last I heard he was starting on the beach, right? I think this is the this is this week. He sent me this, texts me this right here. And then I think he's going to end up in the mountains. So he's starting low, going high. And this is really as funny as it gets today, guys. So if that didn't make you laugh, that's 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 pretty much what we're after. So okay, so we're going to dig into the book of Titus. So if you have not done so already, please turn there. And while you're turning there, I will give us A little bit of background on Titus. So as we're turning there, so this book, Titus, is a letter. It's an epistle written from the Apostle Paul to a pastor in Crete, which you can see on the map there. And the pastor, his name is Titus. And so this is a letter written from Paul to Titus. It's a letter of instruction. As we will see, Paul is giving Titus a task. He's telling him some things that need to be done in the church there, and Titus is going to live it out. And if you... If you know the book of Acts well, you know in Acts 27 that Paul established the church there at, at Crete and, and left Titus there to grow it. And so that's what we're in the middle of right here. Paul has planted and left, Titus is there and he is growing the church. Lots of scholars think this, this letter was written about 65 AD, which was not long before the death of Paul. Um, so this is one of the last letters that Paul likely wrote in his life. Like we said, it's not a long book. It is three chapters. That's part of the reason we chose it, because we're going to camp on one chapter a week for the next three weeks, and even though it's short, and it is really short, it is packed with really good instruction for God's people. So um, like Rob kind of alluded to, just hoping to give some really pointed instruction from the Word of God over these next few weeks, We're, we're really excited about it. A good theme verse for the whole book of Titus, if you wanted to look one place and say this is really what the whole book is about, it's in Titus 2, 11 through 14. And I know Brent, Brent left, Brent saw I was preaching and he left. Oh, you moved, okay, good. Brent, I know you're teaching Titus 2 next week and it's only 15 verses, so I'm not going to steal your thunder, I promise. But um, I want us to look at just a few verses here because this part of Titus 2, is kind of like a theme verse for the whole book. It really sums up what we're after here. So Titus 2, 11 through 14 kind of tells us where we're going with this three-week study. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for this blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his own, eager to do what is good. That is a mouthful. I do not expect you to remember that or take that all in at one time. If we were to condense that into something much more chewable for us, right, if we will. So the condensed version of that is, is that the grace of God allows us to say no to our earthly passions and instead live for Jesus while we wait for his return in light of all this, let's be people who are eager to do what is good. So that is the journey we're going we're gonna to be on as we kind of zoom out on Titus over the next three weeks. The theme that is kind of going to be prevalent throughout this whole book uh, is one of restoration. The theme is that God's grace trains us to be restorers in every facet of our lives. Uh, Paul's idea here is that we would be people who see brokenness in the world and that we'd be people who rush to meet that brokenness with healing and with restoration in response to what Jesus has done for us. So because Jesus has been so good to us, we want to go and, and do good for others. And this is kind of the outline loosely that we see in Titus. In chapter one, we see restoration in the church. That's where we're going to camp today. Chapter two, more restoration um, in the home and in the family. And then three, restoration in the world. And so we're going to camp on one of those uh, for each week in the next three weeks. So today we're going to hit chapter one. But before we do, I want to make one thing really clear, because we're talking about doing good works, and we're talking about restoration and being the church, and something we have to get straight and and make sure we're reading through the same lens here is that everything that we do in in terms of restoring and, 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 and doing good works, it has to be under the conduit of God's grace, right? It has to be in response to what God has already done for us. Any healing or restoring or good thing that we do out of anything else, be it legalism or moralism or anything else is not pleasing to God. It's not what he's after. So every good thing we do, every restorative work, has to be out of response to God's grace. We look to do good because of the great spiritual position that we hold before God due to the sacrifice of Jesus. We were made righteous by Jesus' death and resurrection, and we now hold the same spiritual position that he does before God. And in Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, they both make it so clear that we are seen as believers in, in, in Christ and followers of Christ, that we are seen as blameless and holy before God, just as Jesus is, and, and that we now hold the same position before God that he does, and we also hold the same inheritance that Jesus does, okay? Um, and that's, that's really good, and we know that, but when you really internalize that and when you think about the things that you know you've done and you know the ugly motivations of your heart and the words you've said and the thoughts you've thought and the things you've done and you have that here, but then you also also weigh that against God's goodness and his promise of eternal life for you and his perfect standing in his sight. Man, when you weigh those two things and know how God feels about you despite the things that you do, It it bubbles up this joy, this indescribable joy inside you that doesn't stay inside you, but it actually changes the way that you live. It it actually overflows into every single part of your life. And this is what we want to prompt the good works that we do. This is what we we want to prompt all the restorative works that we will do in Jesus' name. Because legalism, guys, legalism can't do this. Legalism makes us obedient for a short amount of time. But even in that obedience, it's not done out of joy or gratitude to God. And, and it's actually really useless to him. And, and moralism can't do this either. Moralism is trying to make things right in your own eyes so that you feel like you are on the right side of things or you're a good person. Moralism can't sustain this either. It really has to come back to a foundation of, of being spilled over out of what Jesus has already done for you. So... That was a lot to say. With all this in mind, right, knowing that Paul is writing to urge us to be restorers in response to God's kindness towards us, let's jump into the text with that lens, that 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 is why we want to act as restorers, because of what he has done and nothing as far as trying to earn anything. So let's get into what it actually says here. Titus 1 one and two is, is how Paul starts this, and this, these first two verses really start as Paul's mission statement, not just in Titus, but for his whole ministry. This is what Paul is about right here. He says, I, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised from the beginning of time. So we see this is why Paul does what he does, He says, this is my whole mission. This is the whole reason that I uh, am doing what I do. One is to build up faith and knowledge of truth in God's people. Two, so that they will live more godly lives. And three, in response to or because of the hope that they have in Jesus, right? So Paul says, I'm going to spread truth. I'm going to increase faith and, and knowledge of truth in God's people so that they will be more godly because of the hope of eternal life that they have. And this hope that we're talking about, when we talk about the hope of eternal life, we always think of it in one direction. We always think of it after death, which is true. It goes on forever and it's good. But the wording here is so good because Paul says that it was promised to us before the beginning of time. Meaning that God's grace towards you and being someone that He has chosen to be His child doesn't just happen at this moment in time and extend into eternity future. But if you were chosen before time began, God knew He was going to show you grace before the minute was invented, right? I mean, what incredible security we have in God's grace because before, before time, you were already secure in him. It's not, like, it's not like God at one point in time looked down on you and decided to show you grace, right? And that he was, he was compelled or maybe obligated to do it and, and maybe he'll take it back at some point. No, if you are in him, you have been in him from the beginning because you were chosen before the beginning of time. It's just this incredible security that we have in the grace of God. And Paul's whole point in saying this is this, it's that when you really believe that eternal life awaits you and you really feel the full security of God's grace towards you all the way back, knowing it's not something he decided to give you at one point or will ever revoke, but you are so secure in it. When you have a firm grasp on those things, it is gonna cause you to live differently. Your life will not look like somebody's life who doesn't ascribe to those beliefs because it's too big of a thing to just keep inside you. You're going to naturally let it spill over into actions. But we're not talking about something that you believe casually. We're not talking about something that you come once a week and talk about or listen to a podcast about but never live out. We're talking about something that you will throw yourself fully into and be fully devoted to, right? That is when we will see life change. That is when we'll see Jesus start to manifest himself in the things that we do. That is what actually leads to action. Um, and I have a little way to demonstrate this if you guys will entertain me, okay? If you will, you're second service. First service, they're tired, they just out of bed. You guys are second service, you're fun. So this is gonna be a good exercise for us. So what it's gonna require is, I'm gonna say a few things, and if you agree with that, if you would stand, and we'll see who's standing at the end, okay? Steve, you look nervous. You're a deacon, I should probably be nervous. Are we gonna step out for a second for this one? Okay, we're gonna talk about trust and how trust and belief lead to action. So if you believe, for instance, hypothetically, that I am at least a decent shot with an airsoft gun, would you stand up? That I am at least a decent, not even a good shot. There are a lot of students in here not standing, and I, I just want you not to take it personally. <laughs> that I am at least a decent shot with an airsoft gun. Okay, yeah, let's give it a second. just I, I'm not great. I'm probably okay, right? Wow, thought my church had more faith in me. Okay, I see all of you out there. Great, okay. So, at least I'm a decent shot. Who, so you believe that I'm a decent shot. Who believes that I am a decent enough shot with an airsoft gun to hit a balloon? That I could at least hit a balloon. That's not hard, right? Okay, you're all still standing. Good. My wife is standing. That's good. She knew she couldn't sit down for this. Who believes that I'm a good enough shot to hit a balloon right now in church? That I could do it in front of all of you? Oh, and Keegan sat down. He's like, no, he couldn't do it in front of all of you. Okay, you still believe? Who believes that I'm a good enough shot with an airsoft gun to hit a balloon here in church with someone actually holding it. I just found the airsoft from first service, so you know we're gonna do it. Do you think I could do it if someone was holding it? Who believes enough that you would be willing to be the one to hold the balloon while I shot it here in church in front of everybody? That's where Ryan sits down. Yep. <laughs> we have a few, we have a few standing. Brent, you're still standing? We have a few believers. A few resilient disciples. Oh, now being shot is involved, so you're interested. Brent, do you want to come up and hold it for me? I would like you to, Brent, because I think it's not likely that you'll sue me if I miss. So, oh, is that part of the plan? Okay. So we're demonstrating. Brent believes enough that I am a good shot with an airsoft gun that he was going to hold something. It is evoking some sort of action in you, right, Brent? So you're going to stand over here. I'm going to give you this, so hold this, not in front of you probably, that wouldn't be, maybe to the side, there you go, and then I have, we're going to blindfold you, is that okay? Let's go against the wall. There's not a lot of blood on this from first service, just a little bit, so, <laughs> that doesn't look good on the, on the online feed, so maybe, <laughs> here, turn around, let me, this is eye protection and dramatic effect. It only took like three tries the first time, so. Okay, so you are going to stand. Let's come over here. Let me guide you. Do you trust me still? This is some real belief. How about in this one? Because that's away from the people. Yeah, we hold it like that? You will? You trust me under there? Okay, good. Brent, this is some real trust. This is some real trust that is evoking action, okay? So I'm going to shoot this thing because you trust me too. Well, that's good. That's why we blindfolded you first. Okay. There we go. Well done, Brent. Okay, give it up for Brent. That was, that was good. Thanks, man. You're a real one. You can keep that bandana. So that was uh, a good excuse for me to shoot a gun while Garen was gone. But also, it was to show... That when you really believe something, it's going to evoke action in you, right? It's going to change the way that you live. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He is writing so that people will believe so much they will actually live their lives through Jesus. They will not just be nominal Christians. They will be real Jesus followers. Okay, so let's get into the real text here. Um, In in verse 4, we start to see some background of the person Titus. Not just the book, but who is this guy really? Because in verse 4, Paul says, To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Savior. So Paul calls Titus a true son in the common faith. This makes us think that, that Paul had some hand in leading Titus to Christ, that they've known each other for a while, and Paul had a hand in actually bringing him to faith. And when we talk about Titus, this, this pastor here on the island of Crete, he is a guy who has been through the ringer? He is not a new pastor. He is seasoned veteran. We first see Titus in Galatians 2, when he is in the middle of a heated debate about circumcision, because Titus is a minister of the gospel, and he's not circumcised, and the Jews are upset with him for that. We also see in 2 Corinthians that Titus has been sent to a church by Paul to rebuke that church. Not easy. And then take an offering from that church. Also not easy, especially when you just rebuke them. So he's done hard things. And then we see in 2 Timothy 4.10 that that uh, Titus is sent to Dalmatia to pastor there, and that's the last we hear of him in the New Testament. Church tradition tells us that he then moves to Crete after his time there in Dalmatia, so he's a, he's a guy who's, who's been around for a while, and then in Titus 1.5, we get into the meat of the letter because Paul begins his instruction to Titus regarding the churches there, and that's what the bulk of this letter is. It's, it's Paul talking to Titus about the churches there in Crete, And talking about things they need to do, things that have gone wrong, and how to correct that stuff. And so that's the meat of what we're we're discussing here in verses 5 through 9. So let's read Titus 1, 5 through 9 and get into the the bulk of of what Paul's saying here. He says, Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, who is upright, who is holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So Paul is... Is telling Titus, this is how you need to equip your churches with these kinds of people here in Crete. So Paul planted the church, Titus is growing it, and, and it's really some rocky soil. It's some rocky soil that, plant, that Paul planted in the, and that Titus is, is cultivating here because the Cretan people, they are a hard people. They are drunkards, they are violent, they have a, a, a reputation for being dishonest and untrustworthy. And in that part of the world, no one really trusts Cretans. If you were to say that you were a Cretan outside of Crete, even in Crete, people would know this is the kind of person that you are. There was a certain stigma that came with it. Um, And the reason we know this is true is because Paul, later on in verse 12, he quotes a Cretan poet who says this about his own people. This Cretan poet named Epimenides, he says... And he is one of these, but he says, hey, I admit it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. So we know this is the the kind of people that Paul and Titus are working with, right? So obviously they have their their work cut out for them. And it would be easy for Titus to get this directive from Paul, to come and cultivate this church in Crete. And, And he, of course, Titus knows what it's like in Crete. And it would be easy for him to be like, Paul, are you serious, God, why would you have me why would you call me into this, this really hard situation with these hard people? And I know that those are things that we ask ourselves a lot too. You're following Jesus and you feel like he is asking you to enter into a situation that's tough, that's, that's messy, right? That's, that's gonna be broken. Um, it could be a hard conversation. It could be just a hard situation. It could be with your family. It could be at work. It could be another relationship. And it's easy to say, God, why are you calling me into this? And I would say, The reason that he's calling us into this is because we have been healed to heal. And we, as Jesus followers, have been restored to restore. And Jesus came and he said, I I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I came looking for brokenness so that I might heal it. And so that is what we have to be ready to do as Jesus followers as well, because God at his core, Garen's been talking about this, is a restorer. And so we, as his people, need to go out and be the same thing to the world. So here's what I'm saying for us, is that as as real Jesus followers, not just people who say it and come once a week, but as people who are gonna live it all the time, we have to be people who don't shy away from hard situations, who don't shy away from brokenness when we see it. We cannot be hermit crab Christians. Have you guys ever had hermit crabs? We had and accidentally killed like nine when I was a kid. So I'm very well versed in the way of the hermit crab when a hermit crab gets there, it pulls into its shell and it waits for trouble to pass and then it comes back out. We cannot be hermit crab Christians who see brokenness or see the opportunity to go into a hard conversation or situation and restore it and just shrink back and let it pass by until it's gone and then we come back out. That's not what we should be. Instead, we should be restorers who are asking God for eyes to see brokenness and for hearts to engage it, right? Right? And this was said, Brian, you know this, it was said at a deacon meeting a few weeks ago. It was so good, it stuck with me that we should not be repelled by brokenness, but we should be compelled to restore it in Jesus' name. Let me say that again. We need eyes to see brokenness, and we need hearts that are not repelled by brokenness, but that are compelled to restore it in Jesus' name. If you have ever watched TV, you have probably seen a commercial for the Marines, because they have a lot of commercials, and they're actually really good commercials. And one that I saw a few years ago that's always kind of stuck with me. It opens up and these Marines are running. They're running towards the sound of gunfire. There's like one in the desert and they're like running towards a battle. There's one in the jungle and they're moving, they're moving forward. And the narrator, his voice says, there are some who move towards the sound of chaos, the first to react to tyranny, injustice, and despair. And then it ends with, they are the few, the proud, the Marines. And man, when I saw that, I was like, sign me up. Like, I want to go. This is awesome. And I, I saw that, and I didn't think about it then, but I think about it now as I, as I read Titus 1, and it's like, as Jesus followers, shouldn't we be the exact same way? Shouldn't we be people who see brokenness and don't shy away from it, but we're restored, so we're running towards the chaos. We're running towards the injustice. We are reacting when we see something that's not right, and we are looking to be restorers and healers in the name of Jesus, I hope that's the kind of people that we are, and, and I hope that we see ourselves as spiritual Marines, honestly, like people who are, who are here. We're not just going through life on autopilot, but we're, we're looking for situations, and we're ready to react when it happens, right? That we should see ourselves as the few, the proud, the restorers. That should be our mentality every single day. And so Paul gives instruction to Titus on how to enter into these difficult situations, right? He says, here's the brokenness, we need to engage it, so here is how we're going to do it. And he, he says, um, in, the, in the Cretan church, we're going to bring about healing by appointing some elders, right? So he tells him, appoint elders in each church, and, and then he's going to go on to explain what kind of people these elders need to be. Now, as we get into this, our understanding of the word elder in the church is essentially um, someone who is valued, for their wisdom, who hold some form of authority or leadership in the church, right? So that is what an elder is. And, and there is some debate in Christian circles about what is an elder, what is it not, who can be an elder, who cannot. And people talk about those things, but that's not what I wanna do today. It doesn't do any, any good to really exegete that out. What I wanna do is take us in a different direction. I wanna take us in the direction to ask, what if we all looked at these characteristics of what an elder should be? And what if as the people of God, we applied them to our own selves and we didn't just leave it to church leadership? What if the whole body of Christ aspired to do these things as well? So let's, let's look here. We've already read it, but in five through nine, Paul says, I want my elders to be blameless, right? Not people who are perfect, obviously, because we don't have any of those. It'd be great if we did. But people who in the community, we have them here in Emporia. When you look at them, you say, man, they're doing it right. I want my kids to be like them. Um, I know they're not perfect, but, man, they're a really good example of, of what we should be going after here. So that's the kind of thing. They need to be blameless. They need to have this good reputation. They need to be faithful to their spouse. They need to be um, people whose children believe, it says, and are not wild or disobedient. And if you read that and you're like, oh, man, elders' kids have to believe, what does that mean? Um, it, it's not saying that as an elder or a church leader that your, chi- your children have to have faith that they have to be saved Um, and we get into trouble because when we translate from Greek to English, it gets sticky, but after a little bit of digging, it's plain to see that a pretty uncontroversial take on this verse that says your children must believe and not be wild or disobedient is that Paul is not saying that your kids have to be believers necessarily if you're a leader in the church, but what he's actually doing is just building on the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 14, who say, he who is faithful with little would be faithful with much. In other words, if you cannot be trusted to run your family well, then you're not gonna be trusted to run anything in church. You've gotta be faithful with, God, with what God gives you before you are ready for more. Now again, let's not take this too extreme either because kids act out, kids do dumb things, kids are problematic, as Katie and I have learned, and, um, and so it's not like your kids have to be perfect. In fact, just this week, Jet, who is two, let me give you an idea of who Jet is. This is pretty much Jet all the time, naked and covered in something. And so this week, Jet takes nine bites out of eight peaches because he wants to and puts them all back. And he knows he's not supposed to do this. He has a proclivity for doing this. So I walk in as the ninth bite is being taken and I put it back and I smack his hand and I tell him no. And, uh, and this is kind of a power move. Like I smack his hand and I tell him no. And he just stands there and he just waits. And I'm thinking he's gonna cry, but he just stands there. And then he slowly raises his other hand to me to hit it too. And I'm like, you're like the Terminator? Like I'm afraid of you, Why? Does this not affect you? So he won. He got to just eat the peaches at that point. Um, but what's important is that our leaders aspire to lead well in their home before they lead well in the church. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. There's actually more textual evidence that this is what it is, that, that Paul is saying your children need to be obedient, not necessarily believers. Um, so quickly, I'll, I'll, I'll hit that. I don't want to get too far into it. But Titus 1 is where this, this word believe is in our passage, but then the same Greek word shows up in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and in that passage it's translated as obedient. And so what many people have taken that to believe is that Paul here in Titus 1, 6 is saying you need to have children that are obedient, that are not wild um, and disobedient to you, not that they are necessarily believers. So just to put your mind at ease that you can be in church leadership even if your kids are not believers, it's, it's okay, um, or if they're not perfect. Okay, back to the list. Paul is saying, he continues there in verse six and seven. He says, elders, I don't want you to be overbearing. I don't want you to be quick-tempered. I don't want you to be given to drunkenness or violent or pursue dishonest gains." So he's got this list. But then he also turns it and he says, here are the things I actually want you to do. Leaders, I want you to be hospitable. I want you to be one who loves doing what is good. I want you to be self-controlled. I want you to be upright. I want you to be holy and disciplined. I want you to be one who holds firmly to the message that has been taught to you, which is God's word. And so this is what Paul is asking his leaders in Crete to look like. Now, luckily, God does not expect perfection of his leaders, right? No one keeps these things perfectly. Otherwise, I and no one else would have a job. But I wanna ask a question as we think about this. Those of you who are parents, think in terms of your kids. And if you don't have kids, think hypothetically. Do you want all of your kids to obey you equally? Are you okay with some kids obeying you better and then you ask much less of others? And then think, how does God think about his kids in terms of that? Do you think he asks some people to obey a long list and others he lowers the bar for? That he doesn't want to see as much obedience as these as he does in these? I would say... He does not do that. He doesn't look at Garen, who's a pastor, and say, Garen, you've got it together, so I'm really gonna ask you and your family to do this list, but others who aren't in ministry, you know, you can just obey this and it's fine. I don't think he acts that way. And the reason is because positionally speaking, we all hold the same level of right standing before God, the same as any pastor or pope or bishop or anything, because God does not have a group of church leaders in the world that he is hoping to do things through and has a high bar for, and then there's other people. It's not like that. We are all co-laborers in the gospel together. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you, if you are a follower of Christ, then you are a royal priest, that you have the same access to God that anyone else does and that you are just as blameless in God's sight as Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 3.9, Paul calls all of us co-laborers in the gospel. He destroys this idea that it's Paul up here or it's church leaders up here and it's the rest of us down here. He destroys that because we are all co-laborers working together for God's mission. Because God's vision for restoration, it's not carried out by a small amount of leaders. It's not 20% of people doing 80% of the restoring. It's an even spread. He wants that for all of his people. And so, as co laborers in the gospel, we should not leave this list of requirements in Titus 1 to church leadership or to church volunteers or to elders and say, well, I'm not in that position, so this this part of the chapter is really not for me. That's not the way to read this at all. Because whether you are paid by a church to do ministry or whether you are a volunteer or a leader in some volunteer capacity, you are are a co laborer in the gospel, and we want to join with you to equip you to do that wherever you are at in your life. Now, taking a step back, is it important that we remain obedient to this text and that we say we are going to ensure that our church leaders follow these lists of things that we don't necessarily require of everyone who attends TABC? Yes, of course it's important that we remain obedient to the text in that way. But, and this is a big but, it is so important that we not let this kind of thinking become a trap, and that we think that those God has called to be church leaders are being asked to do these things, and that if we're not in leadership or volunteering somewhere, that we're off the hook, that these things are not for us, because God is a good father, and he wants these things for all of his children, and he knows this is how we, we function best, and so he, he wants you to follow this. He's not saying this doesn't apply to you if you're not in leadership. So he moves on in verses 10 through 12, and he addresses some problems they're having there in the Cretan church. Uh, So let's read 10 through 12. Starting in verse 10, he says, For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets, and here we've talked about this, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and gluttons. So there's this problem of meaningless talk, of gossip, of false doctrine being taught within the church here. And he says, Titus, you've got to squash that, so you've got to take care of it. So I'm really pleased to report that Titus in 65 AD squashed the meaningless talk in church, and there's been no gossip in church ever since. It's really, it's a good thing. Just kidding, it happens everywhere, right? Because the church is made of broken people. So in every church we deal with these things. In TEBC we deal with these things, why? Because we're not perfect, because they spring up. The truth is that this happens everywhere and it's a real shame because nothing halts what God is doing like meaningless talk and deception and gossip. Nothing derails the vision of a church. Nothing derails what God is doing through a group of people like meaningless talk and gossip that will disrupt them and get them off track. And so that's why in 13, Paul says, when you come into contact with this, you have to rebuke it sharply. Like, you can't mess around with this. You have to deal with it. In verse 13, he continues. He says, this this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and they will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. So Paul, yeah, we, we said, he, he says, cut it off right away. And two things we have to say about this, because he says to give it a sharp rebuke, but it comes with some caveats, okay? Number one thing we have to remember in terms of the sharp rebuke is that this is an in-the-church issue that requires an in-the-church solution, okay? Um, this is not a free pass to go out into the world, outside the walls of TABC, and say, I deem you to be meaningless talking or gossiping, and I'm going to sharply rebuke you for it. There's so many reasons not to do that. The main one is because this verse is written in context to a church issue that requires a church response. So this, this directive is not for people outside of the church, it's for people inside the church. It's not for those who don't know Jesus, it's for those who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, committing to be a part of the local church, and then acting in a way that goes against the mission of the church by, by engaging in meaningless talk or deception or gossip. And I hope that when we see those things in this body that we call those things out. But it's not easy because number two is that um, you have to, uh, yeah, the number two thing is that you have to have two mouths if you are a believer, okay? So the first thing is that this is this is for in the church. This is not for out of the church. And the second thing is that you have to have two mouths. As a believer, one mouth we, is for building up, is for encouraging, is for edifying. Hey, I am praying for you in that. Hey, I have a verse for you that's going to really con- that's gonna really build you up in that, right? Is to build each other, up, each other up. The second mouth that we have has to be one with which we, we use to, to confront things with truth, right? Because it's easy to encourage, but it's hard to say, I actually see this happening and I have to confront it and it, it's not easy. Because in the church, we want to encourage, we wanna say those things, but if you're in the church and your circle of people is, is, is engaging in meaningless talk or gossip or saying something that is not true, It is your responsibility to rebuke it sharply. Why? Because that will so easily derail what we're trying to do here or in any church. Paul says it's important to do this in order to build up faith and to give attention to the things that deserve it. So we have to take this so seriously. As we kind of wrap up here and and begin to close, the last thing Paul says in chapter one is that this church in Crete claims to know God, but their actions deny him. He says, it says Jesus on the sign, you guys go and you talk about him, but then when you leave the church, your life looks nothing like the life of Jesus. Your actions totally deny him. He says it in verse 16. It says, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Paul says, these people aren't living like Jesus. They have double lives, and because of that, God's not, God can't do anything with you because you're living that way. It's detestable. It's not, it's not useful in any way, shape, or form. Brendan Manning, um, who I've quoted on stage before because I, I love him, he has this quote that fits so well. He says, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. It's us. It's Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then they walk out the door, and they deny him by their lifestyle. And that is what the unbeliever simply finds unbelievable. And that is what's happening in the Cretan church right here. These people are talking about God, but their lives are not reflecting it. And guys, I pray so hard that TABC would not be the Cretan church that we would not be people who come and talk about things or engage in Bible study and say that's really good and then just live totally different. I pray that we would not be unusable or detestable in the sight of God, that would be horrible. We say this a lot from stage, and I'm gonna say it again because this is what I hope we are and this is what I want our vision to be, is that we would be a place where restorers of God's shalom gather as a community to worship him, to be formed in his image, And to be sent out by him. People who come, worship God, are formed by him. And then leave with eyes to see brokenness. And hearts that are compelled to repair it in the name of Jesus and not repelled by it. And say, we're not talking about that or we're not looking that way. Because that is the heart of Jesus, is to engage brokenness. And as we kind of put a bow on Titus 1, we'll move into Titus 2 next week with Brent. I just pray that that we look at everything through this lens of we want to be people who don't do anything out of legalism or moralism. That as we go out and do good works in Jesus' name, it's not because we have to earn it. And it's not because we have to feel good about ourselves. It is simply, like Titus 1 says, an overflow of joy and gratitude in response to what God has done for us. I pray that we are those kinds of people. And I see us being those kinds of people. And so I want to encourage you in that. And also put this before you and say, hey, this is the bar, this is the goal, let's do it well. So let me pray as I close this here in Titus 1. Father, thank you for the day, thank you for your word, thank you that it is a compass for us, um, that you tell us so clearly in, in epistles like Titus, what you want for your people and what you don't want from us. And so God, I pray that as we go home and think on this more and, and, and just spend time alone with you, now that we've been here together, that You would bring this passage to mind that you would show us where we are living rightly and you would equally convict us if we see things in the text here that we're doing or not doing that we should be, God, that you would just bring that to us. And it's not in a shaming or a guilting way, but because you want your people um, on mission for you and this is how we do it. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for a day of rest. I pray we use it well. I pray you use the rest of the Titus study to continue to refine us, to continue to show us what you have for us And that we would truly be a place that is not just talking about you. Lots of places do that. But God, that we would be a place that lives it out in our mission. Lord, let us be people that seek brokenness and that it breaks our hearts and we engage it in your name. And it's in your son's name we pray all these things. Amen. All right. You are sent to be restorers.